You guys, this is so fun to see you. I see some faces that I haven't seen in literally a year and a half. And that is incredible to me. And I see faces that I've never seen before. We've got a good amount of new people here. So welcome to you guys. It's just fun to be here, isn't it? The contemplative journey, the contemplative way is, there's many ways to describe it. But one of my favorite things is when you're in, when you're present in the moment, you don't try to like erase all of what could be a distraction to try to hone in. You actually just welcome and include all of what's around you. And so I'm going to encourage you guys to do that when the wind is blowing, when my papers fly off, or when somebody walks around with a, with a boom box, just take it in. We're in the park, we're in the city, this is, this is a good time. Did everyone have a good weekend off last week? Yeah? You enjoy the week, the Sabbath? We're going to do that again, I believe, on 4th of July week. We're just getting into this routine, especially in the summer, of reminding ourselves that church isn't just Sunday morning services and that being the people of God isn't just a one time a week deal that we can actually rest and breathe deeply and not have to be dependent on Sunday morning services in order to be the people of God and then come back together and enjoy one another's presence and in all of that so I'm I'm enjoying the summer rhythm why don't you we're going to dive back into the book of Daniel but let's pray before we do I'm going to I'm going to pray Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit, I'm thinking of you particularly right now. The Ruach, the the breath, the wind of God that moves as she will. Jesus talked about you that we don't know where the wind came from and where it's going, but we feel it and we sense its presence. And so we feel and sense your presence in this park, Holy Spirit. We celebrate the reality that you are not limited to 1036 North Van Buren Street, but that you, Holy Spirit, are on the move in this world, in this city, in the city of Milwaukee. That you, Holy Spirit, are mysteriously at work in all places, in all people, in all time. And we get the the gift of being included into the story of God. Into the story of redemption and reconciliation. We get to be included in the story of healing and new life. We get to be included in partakers in the story of covenants. And so we soak all that's around us in now. The sound of kids and the city, sounds of the city and races and all of the life around us. We say yes to, to you who's, who's at work, not just in this space, but all around us. So thank you, God. Would you bring Daniel 7 to life in some profound ways for us, in ways that I can't do, but you can, Holy Spirit. Teach us from your scriptures because we, we trust that there's something good, something powerful, something true in your word that when we give ourselves to you in this way that we're going to come out transformed. So would you come and transform us by the renewing of our minds? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Does anybody remember their dreams from last night? Show of hands if you remember your dreams. Just a few of you. I know there's more. We just don't like raising our hands in groups of people. It's okay. Um, did anyone have crazy nightmarish type dreams last night? I get a head nod and a hand raise. Yep, yep. This morning, we get to read a chapter that's basically all about one guy's dream. The Bible is this crazy book where we get narrative and history and stories and then we get poetry and some romantic stuff in it and it's like where did that come from and this morning we get the the word of God in the Bible we get to think about and to center ourselves around a dream a guy had 2600 years ago one night you can say a lot of things about the Bible but you cannot say that the Bible is dry and bland and boring and predictable. It's just not. I find it interesting that I've been studying this guy's dream for several weeks now. And we get to submit ourselves before it. The last time we talked through Daniel, we've been in the book of Daniel for a couple months. We started Daniel when we were still online, Zoom and Facebook Live only, which if you're watching later, we're not live streaming right now, we're not able to, but if you're watching later online, welcome. We love you. Good to have you. Come in person, McKinley Park, 10 a.m. Sundays, we'd love to see you. But it's been all the way since April 25th that I last preached on the book of Daniel, that I, that I spoke about it. It's been over a month that we've t- talked about it because the Holy Spirit kind of hijacked this sermon series and directed us to talk about things like a, a pastoral appeals for unity and the gospel way of self, self-sacrificial, unconditional love. But Back on April 25th was the last time we talked about Daniel. So let me give you just a little recap on the book of Daniel, especially for you new folks who haven't been tracking with us. The book of Daniel, I, I told I was, I went golfing with my, who I consider my pastor. His name's Joe Steinke. Many of you know him. And then my spiritual director, we went golfing on Friday. And they asked what I'm preaching about. And I told them Daniel 7. And they gave me this cross-eyed look like, and they said, why in the world would you preach on Daniel? Are you, do you like punishing yourself is what they were basically asking me. And I said, yes, and I like a challenge, and it's a fun time. But what we find in the book of Daniel is two different very books within the one book. Daniel 1 through 6 are a bunch of short stories, if you remember. And they're not connected to one another as far as sequentially. It's not Daniel 1 happened, and then Daniel 2 happened, and then Daniel 3 happened. They're just these little snapshots of life in exile. Because the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. at a time of crisis for the people of God. In the 6th century B.C., the Babylonians, the empire of the day, the America of the day, came in and ran roughshod over the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. And they killed countless people. The people who weren't killed, many of them, the important people, were taken away into exile to Babylon. And this is the story we get of these four friends who find themselves in enemy territory by no choice of their own. Much of their family has been killed. The people of Israel have been stripped of their national identity, their religious identity, all sorts of things about the things that made them what they, who they felt like they were. Are you with me? And the book of Daniel is about how to live in exile in the empire, in the shadow of the empire, because these four friends and many others like them were forced to have new food and a new language. They were indoctrinated by the religion of the empire. They were trying to turn these good Israelites into good Babylonians. 
And they were given positions of authority. But the book of Daniel is a book all about empire and exile. How to live in the shadow of empire. And how to live while you're living in the empire as exiles. Not being wooed and, and, and taken into the ways of the empire, but actually being living in the empire, but living as exiles. Maintaining this, this identity in Yahweh, in the, in the everlasting God. Are you tracking with me still? Do you remember hearing words like indoctrination and enculturation? Do you remember hearing months ago, a couple months ago, that Daniel is a book about allegiance and worship and faithfulness? Because the empire, Babylon, was calling for the Israelites allegiance and worship and faithfulness. In the book of Daniel is this subversive story of resistance to the empire. God telling his people, it was written in the 6th century B.C., written to the Israelites in the 2nd century B.C. when they were in an even more intense time of crisis, persecuted and tormented by yet another empirical leader named Antiochus. In the book of Daniel is God calling his people and telling them, I know the empire is calling for your allegiance, your worship, and your faithfulness, but I alone deserve your allegiance, worship, and faithfulness. This is the book of Daniel. So the first six chapters, we get these six, these short stories, these little documentary episodes showing us what life was like for them and how they resisted the ways of the empire, even in the face of death. Talking about famous Sunday school stories now of Daniel in the lion's den that Shelley preached about way back in, I think it was early April. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three friends thrown into the blazing furnace because they would not bow the knee to the king of the empire and to the ways of the empire. This baby's just barely holding on. All right. Now we get to the crazy part of the book of Daniel. The, the reason that my pastor and spiritual director looked at me cross-eyed and was like, why are you taking on the task of preaching the book of Daniel? If you remember on April 25th, I talked about the apocalyptic writings in the, the apocalyptic literature in the Bible in the second half of the book of Daniel is all apocalyptic literature. And does anybody remember if you were in person or listening online, does anybody remember anything about the apocalyptic literature? First thing, does anybody remember what the Greek word for apocalypse means? Yes? Revelation, Revelation to reveal or unveil something. Well done. To reveal or unveil, an unveiling. So the apocalyptic literature is when written when God's people are in a time of what? Crisis, Jason! The apocalyptic literature is written to God's people from God when they are in a time of crisis, which they absolutely were in the book of, Dan in, the book of Daniel in the second century BC. And it's written to God's people to unveil what's really happening in human history. They're looking, like we are looking in 2020 and 2021, seeing all this chaos happening, seeing a global pandemic, seeing vaccinations happening and we get vaccinations but India has has vac COVID popping right now because they don't have access to it and then we see a, an election happening and we see people predicting the end of the world and there's all this stuff happening in apocalyptic literature would be like if God wrote us a letter somebody came and said I got a vision from God and this is what he said and it would be God saying I want you to know what's really happening in 2020 is this making sense now 
Apocalyptic literature is an unveiling of what's really happening within human history at a particular moment to encourage the people of God in a time of crisis. In apocalyptic literature, it's pretty much always written to what kind of people? Does anybody remember? Say that again. Philip Debing, oppressed, marginalized people. Apocalyptic literature is God unveiling what's really happening in the human history, showing God's people where this is all headed, and it's all headed towards victory and triumph and redemption for God and the people of God in all things, really. And God's saying, I know that this, this, this maniacal evil leader who's persecuting you, who's torturing you, who's making your life really, really hard, seems like he will have the last say, but he will not. This is always what apocalyptic literature is about, whether it's in the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. And then we get shades of it throughout the Old Testament as well. And you get a little bit of it in the Gospels when Jesus is talking. I'm having to temper myself a little bit because I'm pretty excited about this. It's a good time. So we're diving into Daniel 7, the first chapter of these apocalyptic books where we get this, these crazy, intense dreams where we literally, this is the, fo- Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross. Sometimes I feel that in moments like this where, where we study one person's dream from one night around 2,600 years ago. And the Holy Spirit says, I've got something for you today, right now. That's a fun time. So let's dive into Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is, is a mirror chapter of Daniel 2. Does anybody remember what Daniel 2 was all about? This is going to require some real deep dive here. I'm seeing people look at their phones, and I'm not going to let you cheat. Daniel 2 is where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Do you remember? And Daniel goes and, and interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a, has a dream of four, uh, a statue that has kind of four parts to the statue, if you remember. It's a sequence of four. In this, in Daniel 7, it's been turned upside down, and Daniel is the one who's had the dream, and we're going to find a sequence of four beasts as well, just like in Daniel 2. God is saying something similar, but different. So if you have your devices, we don't have, we're trying to figure out what to do with Bibles. We, I like it when you guys read. Daniel 7 is one that you're going to want to read along to, so I'm going to encourage you, get your phone out if you've got one, if you've got a smartphone. If you're like me and you brought a Bible, get that out and just be disciplined about keeping those pages down. I'm going to try my best here. And we're going to get Daniel 7 going here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Have you ever done that? Had a dream, took note, wrote it down, or maybe took a little voice. I did that. A couple months ago, I had this dream that felt noteworthy while I was camping. I made a voice memo, sent it to the elders. It happens sometimes. This dream felt significant, so Daniel wrote it down. And Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Now, see, even that is imagery. The apocalyptic literature is spoken and given in metaphor and symbols. It's basically coded language, and there's significance to many things within apocalyptic literature. So even if, as we see the, the winds of heaven churning up the great sea, there's visions of the, all the way back to what? I think I heard Genesis 1. Genesis 1, where 
in the very beginning, the Spirit is hovering over the chaos of the deep. Great seas are kind of connote chaos and, and wild, unknown activity in ancient Near Eastern apocalyptic literature. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. They emerged out of the chaos. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I want you to put on your thinking caps here and now. Just imagine this, what Daniel saw in his dream. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. He's trying to make sense of what he saw. This wasn't exact and precise. It's just him trying to put words to what he saw that was just so wild. It was a beast. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. Second beast, which looked like, the, looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. And Daniel has trouble even writing this. It disturbed him so much. A terrifying and frightening and very powerful beast. He's got nothing to compare it to even. One looked like a lion with the, with the head, head of a, wings of an eagle. Another looked like a bear. Another looked like a leopard. This one he's got nothing to compare to. It had large iron teeth and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, huh, <laughs> what are those? There before me was another horn, a little one which came up am among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and spoke in a mouth that spoke both boastfully. Now, any guesses quickly as to what vaguely, vaguely, what those four beasts might represent? Empires, good job. Kings or kingdoms, empires. In the Bible, both in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, when you see beasts, always think empire. Always think kingdoms of this world. Always think evil, maniacal rulers. Horns in the, in, the, in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, and even you'll find it in the Psalms. There's many other places in the Bible where horns are used symbolically for power in the ancient Near East. So we've got four beasts, which Daniel probably knows are four empires. But it, all of a sudden the vision takes a turn. And as I looked, Daniel said in verse 9, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and it had wheels that were all ablaze. We're talking like a holy rolling throne of God, chariots of fire material. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Daniel's trying his best to tell us what he's seeing in this apocalyptic vision. The court was seated, and the books were open. Now, this is interesting. There's three times in the, in, the, in the scriptures where God is referred to as the Ancient of Days, and they're all here within Daniel 7. 
Nowhere else would you, will you find that. And then we find God looking like Jesus in the book of Revelation with hair white as, white as snow and eyes of flame. And then we see this, the, the, his, his throne has wheels that are aflame. But then it says at the very end, the court. It talks about a court scene, that this is, the court was seated and the books were open. God is putting the empires of this world on trial. Judgment is happening for the empires of this world. Are you, are, are you with Daniel in this ancient 2,600-year-old dream in what God was saying to his people. Daniel said, Then I continued to watch, and because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking, I kept looking at this little horn until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will, not that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Where have you heard of the phrase son of man in the Bible? In the Gospels. Jesus called himself the son of man. It's interesting. Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the, the holy one of Israel. Jesus is the Messiah, but you'll very rarely if ever find Jesus referring to himself in the gospels as the Messiah. Other people say it about him. When he asked the disciples, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And he says, Peter says, the Christ, the 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 Holy One of Israel, the Messiah who's come to save his people, Jesus will let other people say that about him, but he never calls himself the Messiah. Probably, likely, because that word Messiah had all sorts of, of baggage loaded into it. That the Israelites, the people of God in, in, in Judea, in, in Jerusalem, the time of Jesus, had all sorts of ideas about what the Messiah would be and would look like. And it was not consistent with who Jesus was. There were, there were ideas with this word Messiah that went along with things like war and violence and conquest. And Jesus was nothing like that. So we see Jesus picking up this moniker from Daniel 7 and calling himself the son of man over and over again. And the son of man literally means just the son of Adam. Adam is this Hebrew word, and it's actually in Aramaic here because the book of Daniel is a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. But the Adam, our word, our name Adam that we have for Adam and Eve, Adam just means the human one. Adam is like a prototype the human one. And so when Jesus called himself the son of man, he's calling himself the son of the human one or just the human one, Bible scholars will, say, will call him. The human one. So interesting how Jesus chose to identify himself. Then we go on. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the, vision, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of these standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave interpretation of these things. The quote, the four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Yes, forever and ever. So in other words, the four beasts are kings or kingdoms of the world, empires and rulers of these empires. And the son of man in Daniel 7 is actually the people of God. 
The Son of Man is the people of God, and the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying with his iron teeth, bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head, and about the other one that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than any of the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched... This horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days pronounced judgments in favor of the holy people in this court setting and the the holy people of the Most High. And And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it and crushing trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Nobody knows what that means. A time, times, and half a time. The best biblical scholars, the best guesses say that it means possibly like a year, two years, and a half a year. So three and a half years. A, a, a time, a season of th- about three and a half years. It's a good guess. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is some interesting business here. Interesting business. So Daniel asks for interpretation of the dream from one of the tens of tens of thousands that are there. And this messenger gives Daniel this interpretation and basically says, again, these four beasts are four kings or four kingdoms, four empires that will will dominate the earth. And then the last one, this little horn, is one that will really oppress the people of God. And there's many guesses as to what these four beasts are, what empires or what nations they are, whether it happened... thousands of years ago or whether it still has yet to happen. Some people think literally none of this has happened. It was written for us to know what the end, end times will look like and when they will happen. And that, that little horn is the Antichrist, the, the, the 666 that we read about in the book of Revelation. And it's not terrible biblical exegesis to think that. You can think that. Many scholars do. Some scholars believe that the four kingdoms that are represented by these beasts in Daniel 7 are actually the four kings that we learn about in, da- in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, uh, Darius, and Cyrus. They think that all of the beasts are right here in the book of Daniel. That's not, a bad, that's not bad biblical exegesis. It's not a bad interpretation. I think the best ones, best biblical scholars, think that these four kingdoms were kingdoms that happened in biblical times first starting with Babylon, second with Persia within the book of Daniel then Greek, the Greek empire which was oppressing the people of God when this was written and it was and, and then the empire of Rome, I think that's probably the best and then they think that this little horn that really oppresses God's people is this, this Greek ruler called Antiochus, Antiochus the fourth and he, Antiochus was a ruler in the second century BC when the book of Daniel was written and when it was written to the people of God when they were in an intensely tragic and and tumultuous time where Antiochus came and 
and again took over the temple in Jerusalem, killed a bunch of Israelites, and even worse than the Babylonians, would literally torture anyone who was practicing Judaism, worshiping Yahweh. It was one of the most intense times, it was the most intense time to be a Jewish person up until this moment in history in the second century. Now, all of these interpretations are interesting, but what I find most interesting is what Jesus thought about it. And I don't have this magical ear to to Jesus that gets to hear exactly what Jesus thinks about it. We get to hear what Jesus thought about it and the way Jesus interpreted it in the Gospels. Jesus, again, calls himself, he references Daniel 7 every time he, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's right from this chapter. And then there's this moment, one of the most, the, the most dramatic moment in Jesus, the story of Jesus and Jesus' life, where he's quoting from Daniel 7 in ways that you and I, most of us, most none of us knew about that Jesus is actually quoting from Daniel 7. In Matthew 26, if you want to turn there or find that in your app. Matthew 26 is when all of history is coming to its climactic moment. Jesus has been arrested. He's, he's prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested, and now he's standing before what's called the Sanhedrin, which is just the word for the popular or the, the powerful religious elites, the gatekeepers. When you think about the people who are, have power in the, religion, in the Christian world today, that's who Jesus is standing before. And let's read this together. Those who had arrested Jesus, this is in ch- verse 57 of Matthew 26. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. This is all the powerful people. P- Peter followed him at a distance and right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down by the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. This whole thing is a scam. It's a total sham. They know it. Jesus knows it. Everyone knows it. But they did not find it any, so though, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And Jesus just remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus, in total Jesus fashion, says, You've said so. I love that so much. You said it, not me. And here we go. This is straight from Daniel 7. See if you recognize it. Jesus replied, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, whenever we read this, We think Jesus is talking in some heavenly fashion. Clouds and the Son of Man and sitting not in the right hand of the the Mighty One. What Daniel's doing here is like super, super clear to the high priests and the chief priests. See, Daniel's talking to a bunch of Bible geeks. He's talking to a bunch of people who know the scriptures inside and out. And so Jesus here quotes from Daniel 7, our text. 
And he uses Daniel 7 to tell them what's going to happen. And he's basically, Jesus is looking at the high priest and he's saying this. Hey, just so you know, I'm the son of man. I know it inter- the interpretation in Daniel 7 said it's the people of God. I'm taking that. I'm the son of man. And if you do this, if you execute me, I will be, will walk in, will, will be risen again in triumph and be, be the Son of Man will, will ascend in the clouds to, to the sit at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, the Mighty One. Jesus is using Daniel 7, which the high priest and the chief priest and the Sadducees, they all knew exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the Son of Man, and if you kill me, I will arise and I will, I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. I become that figure in Daniel 7. And oh, by the way, you're the beast. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know that he's looking at them saying, you're the beast, I'm the son of man, and if you do this, Jerusalem becomes Babylon. Jesus is looking at the gatekeepers, the powerful people who know the scriptures inside and out, who preach to the people and they're all amazed by their knowledge of, of the scriptures, who, who set these laws and keep people accountable, who, who make the rules, who when they speak, people listen and we get all f- afraid of them and we don't challenge them. Jesus, in this subversive way, is standing and speaking to the gatekeepers and saying, just so you know, Remember Daniel 7? They're like, yeah, we know Daniel 7. You're the beast. Jerusalem, the city of God that you all hold so highly that everyone at this point in the Passover, everyone from around this, this region had flocked to, to this Mecca called Jerusalem. Jerusalem has now become Babylon. The people of God have become the beast in Daniel 7. So we see this interpretation that, that Daniel's given, that the four beasts are these four kings and, and empires and the son of man is the people of God. But Jesus, Jesus, as, he, as, he, as he's giving this interpretation, seems to think that you can interpret Daniel 7, the events of Daniel 7, a beast and the son of man, wherever you find the ways of empire ruling and reigning and overcoming the people of God. Jesus kind of uses the the text here as almost like a cloak that you can put on whenever you see these events playing out. So here's our job now, friends. Are you all still with me? Here's our job now. It's our job to ask, have our people, our religious people, become the beast? Jesus... In Matthew 26, as he's standing before the chief priests and the the elders and all of the gatekeepers, is looking at the gatekeepers saying, just so you know, you've become the beast. The beast that you think is against you, you've actually become it. It's our job, friends, at any given moment of time to ask, have our people, our religious people, the the gatekeepers within Christianity in in 2021 in Christianity, have they become the beast? How does that look? My wife is listening to a podcast that's highlighting what's gone on at Liberty University. Gatekeepers. About Jerry Falwell Jr. I'm just going to name names. Jerry Falwell Jr. In the corruption in how the Liberty University likes to say that it's the safest university in the country when actually they get to say that it's the safest university in the country, particularly in regard to sexual assault because they, they, they sweep all the sexual assault under the rug and don't let the police talk about it whatsoever or investigate it. That's why it's seen as the, the safest university in America. 
Or just the other day, I think it was thir Thursday or Friday, I was reading the newspaper and I get this front, front page headline that says the, the Wisconsin Catholic Archdiocese has hired a lawyer and our, the Attorney General is investigating decades of an allegations of sexual assault by, done by clergy in the Catholic Archdiocese now has hired a lawyer who's fighting it and saying that you're targeting the Catholic Church and that you're violating our First Amendment rights, this, that, and the other. They're fighting against it and trying to defend themselves. I'm, I'm just choosing fundamentalists and Catholics because there's everything is in between. And I'm just saying in every tradition, I'm not singling out anyone. I'm saying in every tradition within the church today, we have to look and say, have they become the beast? When you have child after child after child who said I was, I was assaulted sexually by this person in power, you don't hire a lawyer to defend yourself. You say, you look into it and we're going to be as transparent as possible and we're going to agree with whatever you say. That's what you do. If you want to be known as a safe university, Christian university, you stand with victims of sexual assault. It's just easy. So this is our jobs, friends. It's not just in these two areas, but in every way. Have, we, have our people become the beast? Jesus is looking at the people in power and saying, you've become the beast. This is why I know some, it upset some people when we dropped the evangelical label. But that was us looking at the people in power in, 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 in some ways. Not all of them. This is a very Christ-like discipline to look at our people and say, have you become the beast? Here's the next question that we have to ask. I could spend a couple sermons on that one. I have. Here's the next question we have to ask. Have have we become the beast? Have we become the beast? It's easy to, to point our fingers at the church out there and say how dirty and rotten and awful and sinful and, and evil and how they've coalesced around the ways of the empire. And by we, I mean Brew City Church. This is a question we must ask, friends. How and in what ways have we become the beast? How and in what ways have we been let ourselves get wooed by the ways of the empire just so you know that's exactly what the last four weeks were about saying maybe we're letting the ways of the beast in here where we're really proud of talking about the ways of the beast out there maybe we've let the way the ways of the world and the polarization and the divisions and the ugliness creep in here we always have to be self-assessing and saying how have we as a church family as a people of God how have we become the beast and then what you do is you don't get crippled by fear you confront it you name it you be honest about it and then you repent of it and you keep doing that over and over again until it becomes really natural to just recognize sin in ourselves as a church family and to be able to repent of it corporately and to be able to have these conversations with one another. How have we become the beast? Here's the last one. There's a third one. Do you know where I'm going with this? Here's the third question to ask in light of Jesus' interpretation of Daniel 7. How have I become the beast in what ways have I been romanced and wooed by the ways of the empire Though, how, how have I been been coaxed into living in the ways of the empire by the media and the news and the, 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 my chosen media right how have I let those talking heads 
coax me into manifesting and living in the sinful, evil, corrupt ways of the world? How have I given myself to the, to the beast? Would we be standing with Jesus, the innocent slaughtered lamb, or would we be the people in power, or the, maybe not even the ones talking, but just sitting around listening to them accusing Jesus falsely? Would we be afraid of the, of the religious gatekeepers, too afraid to say, speak up and say, this is a sham, it's ridiculous, this guy is the Messiah, and you're about to murder him? What side would we be on? I'm not sure. How have our people become the beast? How have we, Bruce City Church, become the beast? And how have I, Randy Nye, you, become the beast and given into the ways of the beast? This, friends, is the way I think, the way the Holy Spirit is telling us to interpret Daniel 7. Not thinking about what nation or what, what, what empire, or when the end is going to come. It's saying the beast takes all sorts of shapes and forms, and sometimes it looks like me. I want to be found with the Son of Man, the human one. I want to give myself to the way of Christ and the way of Christ alone. Even if I have to stand with Jesus and saying, you have become the beast, I've got the beast inside of me. Repenting over and over again for living more like the empire than living as exiles. We're given, being given an invitation right now, friends. All of us have given in to the ways of empire just looks different and sounds different, feels different for each of us. And all of us are being called to repent of agreeing with the ways of the empire and stepping into living as an exile in the midst of empire. That is a good, sound choice. Are we going to do one more worship song? Yep, let's do it. I'm going to pray. So Jesus, we, we submit ourselves before you. We submit ourselves to your interpretation even of Daniel 7. And we repent. I repent of the ways I've given into the ways of the empire. The way I judge and parse things based on the ways of the empire. It's so, it's so dang difficult to not be wooed and romanced by the empire. Would you help us, Holy Spirit? As we feel the wind, Ruach, as we feel the, the life of the Spirit around us, we get sucked into the life of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us in the, in the, where we feel like it's this tidal wave, this, this spiraling vortex that's just pulling us down deeper into the ways of empire. Would you suck us up and breathe life into us, the life of the kingdom, the life of Jesus the Messiah, the life of the human one, the life of the one who came and revealed what the Father looks like, the life of the one who came and revealed what the kingdom looks like, the life of the one who came and revealed what it looks like to truly be a human being, the human one, the Son of Man. We give ourselves to you in your ways, Jesus, as individuals, as a church, as a people. We give ourselves to you in your ways, not the ways of the empire, would you come and redeem us so that we can bring your redemption to the people around us? Would you come and heal us so that we can bring the healing to the people around us? Would you come and make us new, Jesus, so we can bring new creation to the places around us? But healing and re restoration, redemption, and, and conviction happens first in me and in this house. So would you come and bring it, Jesus? Thank you for this dream that was given to this man 2,600 years ago that we get to use and learn from today. 
And so now we just sing one more time and, and remind ourselves that we serve the King of Kings, the one who sits on the throne. It doesn't matter who's elected every four years, who's governor, who's in the House of Representatives. We, we, we remind ourselves of the one who, who stands above and over all kingdoms and rulers, whose rule and reign will have no end, who's decided to, to, that his way would be the way of a slaughtered lamb, who is willing to be sacrificed and murdered. And that's how victory is accomplished. We give ourselves all over again to that king. So let's stand, friends, and worship one more time.